Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. Today we are going to speak about quality and what it means from the perspective of language translation company. Almost every company claims that they provide the best quality, but few actually can demonstrate it in word and action. My guest today is Lee Turgut. She is a quality and compliance professional with 14 years of experience in the translation industry. With a lifelong passion for language, Lee began her career as a part-time freelance translator and interpreter for the community where she taught full-time. Lee launched into translation full-time in 2011 by joining the ranks of one of the largest global language services providers. There she gained experience in all aspects of localization workflow and spearheaded the quality control department before finding her niche and foreseeably in quality system management and company compliance. Lee is passionate about driving bottom line quality across the board and supporting processes that help make that happen. Lee is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin with a bachelor's in linguistics and a master's in romance linguistics. She is a certified internal auditor and is a founding member and former social media manager for the Women in Localization Texas chapter. Welcome to the translation of Talk, Lee. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so happy that we finally made this. Uh, let's let me ask you about uh, yourself. Tell me about yourself. What are you up to? Um, sure. Well, I'll, I'll uh, start with what I do in localization. Um, so I'm the quality and compliance manager um, for CQ Fluency. I've been in my current role for about two years, uh, and I've been in localization for going on 10, 11 years now. I have a background in linguistics. Um, over the years, I've had uh, I've been a freelance translator. I've uh, been an internal translator. I uh, did localization testing. I've moved into quality control, and then sort of organically moved into quality assurance. So that's what I do now. Um, as for my personal background, I was born in Scotland, and I grew up in France, and now I'm based in Austin, Texas. Wow, thank you so much for that introduction, Lee. Tell me, how did you get involved in the localization industry and what motivated you to step in this direction? Sure. Um, I imagine that it's like a lot of us, it, it just sort of happened. It wasn't my, <laughs> I didn't set out uh, to, to become involved in localization. Uh, right after grad school, I was a high school French teacher, uh, believe it or not, uh, in a small town in Texas. I was actually the only French teacher in the county or in the district and in the county. Um, French is not the most prevalent foreign language uh, taught in Texas. <laughs> so um, so I was teaching all of it. I was teaching five levels of French. Um, it was a ton of prep work. Um, if you're in teaching, then you know that. That's a lot of preps to have. And I got burnt out um, after only five short years doing that. Um, so I asked my you know, what else can I do in linguistics? Like I have to stay with languages. What else can I do with French? And um, translation came to mind. So um, I'd actually already been um, freelance translating in the community and interpreting. So stuff like um, diplomas and birth certificates and things like that. Um, so in 2011, I decided to take the plunge and go 
in full time into translation and I became an internal translator for a big multinational. Um, so yeah, it was a big leap of faith, but I, I haven't regretted it since. I, I love working in this industry. That's that's so nice to hear that you're enjoying what you do because a lot of people are not happy where they are and and looks like this was your calling. Yeah, I really I really believe that. I think <laughs> I think working in linguistics and languages is my calling and my role now in quality and compliance it's sort of adjacent to linguistics like I'm no longer actually working with the language uh the languages themselves but um you know, I I still enjoy it. I feel strongly about what we do as a company and in the industry. Lee, let me ask you uh, about your um, general opinion of this industry. How do you see it shaping now? I guess you have seen it from so many angles, but uh, what is your current view of this industry? Yeah, um, well, yeah, you're right. It's it's pretty different than how it was 10 years ago. And I think that the the main factor in that is, um, is due to the incorporation of technology. So we're seeing shorter turnaround times, um, lower rates to customers. Um, and so um, MT is partly responsible for that. Uh, it's just becoming hyper competitive out there. Um, there's also automation of certain internal processes um, using AI um, to take the human element out of certain things. I don't think that translation is a dying art, though. I'm not cynical about it. Um, I think that the people and by extension, the, the LSPs who will thrive in the industry are the ones who embrace the technology and learn how to use it. If we're talking about MT, then learn how to post edit, um, how to train machines, how to evaluate machine quality. Um, and I think that's how we move the, the needle forward. I think we'll always need a human element, um, but we're just going to get faster and more efficient. So let's zoom in on, on our conversation topic today, which is quality and uh, quality management in a language yes. translation company. And that's something you know a lot about. Let's uh, start by discussing the role of quality in our industry. How do you see it being perceived and executed across the industry? Um, it it kind of surprised me that you that you asked uh, you asked <laughs> me to come and talk about quality. We're very much the people sort of in the behind the scenes. Um, but uh, the concept of quality could be a great area for people, um, unless you work in quality. Uh, so I'll start by sort of defining the two sides of quality that I see. Um, and I think they're often conflated or maybe even used interchangeably. Um, so we have the quality of deliverables, like the, the quality of translation. So I call that quality control or QC. Um, okay. And then there's the, the maintenance of the company's overall quality management system or structure, which I call quality assurance. So an easy way to think of them is that QC is control is um, is concerned, sorry, with finding deficiencies, and quality assurance is concerned with setting up an environment to prevent deficiencies. So these two functions, I see them as symbiotic in a sense. They have the same goal, which is to provide optimal quality um, to our customers. So it's like a, a yin and a yang. So right now I am very much involved in quality assurance. That's the sphere that I work in, but I have a background in quality control. Um, so, so right now I work closely with the QC function at our company. Like our, our projects are aligned a lot of the time. Perfect. What are the basic ingredients of quality within a language translation company? I guess you already uh, discussed how there is a 
process quality and then there's a product quality. Can, yeah. can you talk to us about the ingredients? Sure. Well, so these are just my my opinions, my my musings. But I think the one of the most important things to have in um, your quality system or you know, in terms of quality at your company is um, a focus on continuous improvement. Um, because if you're not constantly seeking to find out um, where you're going wrong or how you could get better, even if you're not going wrong, how to get better, um, then you're you're stagnant. Um, and another thing, second major thing, um, is I think that company leadership plays a big part in this. Um, so it's really important to have um, a leadership who's not only involved in your QMS, but who truly understands like the, the value and the benefits that the company can reap um, from having a robust quality function. Um, so it's, it's really easy to shun the QA translation police or they're out to get you on an internal audit or assign <laughs> you a kappa or something like that it's i've seen those attitudes before and and i oh gosh i i hate them because that's that's not me right that's not the case so the quality function is on the side of the company we're on the side of production um so having a healthy outlook towards your qa function is is very much driven from the top down uh from leadership or or upper management and i think that's super important thank Thank you, Lee. Can you elaborate on the quality management system or QMS that you just alluded to? What is it and how do you create one? Sure. Um, so if you are a small company um, or a small business, then your first step would be to familiarize yourself with a standard. So for example, ISO 9001 is very, very common. Um, and you would write out maybe the basic steps, um, you know, or the basic requirements in a grid, and then write out what your current processes are and see how well they match up. And so this in essence is a, is a gap analysis. So you'll have a, an understanding of maybe what you need to do um, to bring your, your quality up to par. Um, but I think the foundation of a good QMS um, starts with a strong documentation system. I think that's really um, that's really key. Uh, you need clear policies and procedures um, so that you know everyone has access to them, that everyone is trained on them, um, and this helps ensure that every time you go through a project cycle, things are done consistently and in the same way um, to yield a high quality output. Absolutely. Now, is the QMS created by the management as they see fit, or is it something you have to create with all stakeholders, uh, holders, including uh, the people who implement it, like uh, project managers and QA teams? I think that the decision to implement or create a QMS is very much a strategic or like organizational decision, so from management. But one of the keys during that process is to identify roles and responsibilities within the company um, and identify the stakeholders who then become your subject matter experts. SMEs can be definitely, they can be project managers, DTP, localization engineers, linguists. Um, they're really the, the true specialists for their processes. So, um, but for the, the global scope, then yes, that's defined with leadership and a quality expert or maybe your registrar, but then you can involve a lot of other people um, in it as well. Uh, I think there are two aspects of quality. There is, as we talked about earlier, there's mm -hmm. the translation product quality, as in the translation is very good quality. The reader can understand it and find it relevant without any problems. The second aspect is the process that we talked about uh, of executing the translation according to a certain set of rules and parameters. Can you tell me about uh, if this is understood and properly implemented across all language services uh, provider companies? Um, I think you 
hit the, the nail on the head with this question because um, you're right, we alluded it to it a bit earlier, but the distinction is not clear. So QA at one company can mean QC at another company. It might mean quality management at another company. Um, it, it would be really great to standardize these terms in our industry, um, but even beyond localization, quality control looks drastically different um, across industries. Um, so I sometimes have recruiters on LinkedIn um, reach out to me, offering me jobs for um, software defect fixing, which is QA, it's like heavy, heavy coding, heavy engineering, totally not my wheelhouse. So, um, and I know my my quality buddies can relate because it, it happens to all of us. So we joke about it. <laughs> Do you think that, uh, you know, the industry associations and, and other larger organizations have a responsibility to bring some sort of consistency in terms of defining the Q, uh, quality tools um, and interpretation of quality terminology, for example, as we just mentioned. Uh, we don't have a standard way of capturing defaults and translation text today. I mean, Lisa QA was a tool that's developed by, by Lisa back in the day, and that doesn't even exist as an organization. Do you think that there is a gap that needs to be filled? Yeah, I, d I definitely do think that that there's a gap. Um, I think what would be uh, what would be interesting right now, every company defines their quality metrics and their KPIs for themselves according to their own criteria and presents that to prospective clients. As, you know, right. we meet 99% of quality requirements on all of our jobs or or whatever it is. Um, so I, I do think that something that could happen in the industry is for there to be sort of a, yeah, like a, a quality benchmark. So you could really see how, um, especially the the larger LSPs all stack up against each other. And we have sort of like a, a you know, a, a baseline, I guess, um, to go on for, for quality. But um, I like what you said about, um, is it the responsibility of certain um, professional organizations or quality organizations? I think that that's a good idea. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that's that's a good idea. Let's stick to this topic. Now, do you see consistency in executing quality manuals across all product lines and projects generally in language services companies? Yeah, I think I think that's the goal of every QMS because, um, right. you know, we know that uh, a company can offer um, multiple services beyond translation. So like e-learning or back translation or on-site interpretation, what have you. Um, so, so again, the, the documentation needs to be strong. It needs to be policies and procedures, maybe work instructions, but they should be focused on creating the, the best possible product or output for that service. So you'll see some consistency across services because um, quality standards have some basic requirements for those services. And then there's other standards that have some unique requirements um, for the services that they oversee. But the goal is to create consistent output and meet the customer's need, um, regardless of the service that they're getting. Uh, understood. So if we're talking about repeatable quality deliverable, let's talk about standards. You alluded to this earlier. There are different ISO standards. For example, we have the 9001, which is the generic management standard. And then you have the ISO 17100, uh, which is specific to the translation quality implemented in language translation companies. And we also have now the ASTM standard for defining what a language company is. What is your take on being standard certified? What does it mean if an organization has the stamp of quality? Yeah, I think that um, having an ISO cert is certainly an asset to a company. It's a boon. Um, this tells your prospective clients that the company has a focus on quality uh, and customer satisfaction, that 
there are defined processes in place to ensure consistency uh, and to measure process performance and things like that. Um, but that doesn't mean that if you don't have an ISO cert that you do substandard work. Not at all. It's kind of like a, a university degree. It's a piece of paper. It doesn't mean you're smart. <laughs> it means you met you met some requirements and you graduated. Congrats. So you have to use it for it to serve you. Um, so an ISO standard is one of those like internationally respected benchmarks that lends credibility to your, your scope of services. Um, the flip side is some companies will get ISO certified and they'll put the pretty stamp on their website, um, but they're not using the system maybe to its full potential. They're sort of just checking the boxes and going through the motions to maintain maybe the maintain the cert. Like, oh, um, it's a requirement that we have a quality objective. Okay, let's write one. Or, oh, we have to meet annually to talk about quality. So, oh, okay, let's meet. You know, it's kind of, you know, just the bare minimum, but not really putting it all together. So I think the true value in the ISO cert is when every department from, you know, senior management to production to HR to technology understands how they and the company benefit from the QMS. It's a tool to guide us. Um, so yeah, so having an understanding of how all of our processes interact with each other across departments. Uh, for instance, the, the output of one department serves as the input to the next department. Um, right. So ISO helps us evaluate um, risks and mitigate them. So um, just helps us seek how to make things better. So I just think you should look at the big picture of your QMS to truly use it and don't just um, check the boxes. <laughs> you have to Absolutely. understand how, how every, every single person fits into the quality narrative. Let me talk about a popular myth in our industry, and correct me if I'm wrong, almost every small to mid-sized translation company believes that they are unique because they deliver the best quality. Uh, where does quality stand in the grand scheme of things when you're trying to differentiate or distinguish yourself from the competition? Um, yeah, that's true. Right now, if you're a client looking for an LSP, um, I, you know, I, I said this earlier, um, each company can provide you with their own quality specs. But, um, you know, what, what does that mean? Like, how are they truly measuring that? What goes into those KPIs? So they'll put on their RFP, you know, what how they measure their quality or, you know, how amazing their quality is. Um, but I think, uh, you know, they, they might do that through measuring positive feedback from customers or uh, customer retention or how many customer complaints or defects per project, things like that. Um, but like I said, I think we need to equalize the field a bit and have some some sort of benchmark um, and, and use the same KPIs for everybody. Well, we, we are focusing on, on um, customers at this point. Do you think that the customer today expects that quality is given? Do they pay extra for quality? So um, I'll give you my opinion. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think that uh, high quality is a given uh, and a customer should not pay extra for optimal quality. Um, I mean, how do you justify to a customer, well, you know, since you didn't pay our premium fee for quality, we've delivered you crap. You know, I'm, I'm joking, but companies, uh, LSPs take steps internally uh, to ensure and raise their quality, steps that are not charged to the client in terms of time. Um, and that's sort of, you know, to protect 
themselves and their reputation. So um, what those steps could be is maybe like an extra review before delivery, a QC step, you know, something like that. Um, and we're seeing more and more automated tools um, and scripts. So beyond just your normal spell check. Um, so we have tools that can detect uh, incorrect formatting or tags, uh, missing text, um, wrong use of glossary terms. Um, so I think that helps keep a competitive edge. Um, again, that goes back to the whole integrating technology um, to improve our, our quality, yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about QC or the quality control to make sure everything get, gets done properly with translation. So there is sometimes conflict between the translator and the quality manager. We've had incidents of that happening in our industry, and I'm sure almost every LSE organization has experienced that. It is normal for trans for the translator to find themselves on the defensive when the quality team does not agree to their output. How would you advise the translators and frontline team members to work uh, quality assessment and control teams? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely human nature to to want to defend your work. I mean, if of you're course. a translator, if you're a translator, that's your blood, sweat, <laughs> and tears, right? Like you <laughs> you put your heart into it. So um, no one should or would fault a translator for defending their work. But I think it's in, it's important to separate um, errors or feedback in terms of objectivity and subjectivity, which many people know. Um, there are some objective errors, for instance, that are indefensible, um, like an incorrect verb conjugation, uh, incorrect decimal placement, the wrong drug name, something like that. And I, in my experience, I've found that translators really usually really good at recognizing, oh yes, I made an honest mistake, um, you know, or fix it or something like that. But then there are those errors and I'm using air quotes for, you know, I know you <laughs> can't see me, I'm using air quotes, which are not errors, but they're stylistic in nature, or they could represent an improvement on the flow or something like that. And I don't think a translator should be ever penalized for stylistic feedback, but that's just my opinion, and I'm not a business owner, so it's probably a reason for that. Um, but really, if there can be no agreement reached between a translator and a quality reviewer on objective errors, then it's time to engage uh, like a neutral third-party reviewer. Um, but word to the wise, and I've seen this happen, don't just go get Judy from finance because she speaks Chinese, you really need to get, um, <laughs> you know, someone as qualified in the subject matter and the industry as the original linguists. Uh, and of course, they have to be a native speaker. So, um, you know, if you can't reach an agreement on subjective changes, like the preferential stuff, I would just implement what the client wants and document it so you can try to hit their stylistic needs um, next time. I will say one thing. Um, something that goes a long way is setting quality expectations up beforehand, um, you know, setting up, maybe have a meeting with the translators and the quality reviewers and uh, find out what quality uh, the quality team is looking for. Um, yeah, before you kick off the project, uh, create a style guide or something like that, because that'll really reduce and mitigate your, your issues later. The quality comes at a cost. Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, how how do you position quality to your customer uh, if they should pay extra, but it does come at a cost. You have to implement certain processes. Have you ever had to justify the penalty cost of not being able to deliver with quality? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, so from from where I sit, I, I usually help resolve customer complaints, um, for instance. So the impression that I get is that we 
as companies, we're all always pitting timeliness and cost up against quality. It's that holy trinity of translation that we all know so well. Like, do you want it fast? Do you want it cheap? Or do you want it well done? You can't have all three. So the times where I've seen quality systematically suffer are on um, expedited turnaround times, or I guess what we call rush jobs. Um, so th this um, can introduce a lot of risk into the workflow. So for instance, when you, you use more linguists on the job, you have to split, you know, split the content up between, you know, more people, more people are writing to the TM, or, you know, maybe you don't have time to do a full quality check on, you know, the whole word count, or you skip steps. That's when it really suffers. So I've seen some companies, they put sort of like a, a quality disclaimer or a rush clause on the customer's quote, like before the project, informing them that, hey, um, we can definitely meet your crazy deadline if you need it this fast, but in order to do so, your project may be subject to fewer steps or we will have to take these measures um, and this could risk affecting the consistency of the output. And so then you leave it up to the client to evaluate if they're if they're willing to take that risk and and clients will. They'll they'll consider what's more important. Is it having perfection or is it having it sooner? And it, it really depends on their needs and, and their type of content. Um, so so yeah. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human in the loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. It, just like uh, how our preferences in food and beverages are subjective, quality is also subjective matter, I guess. Uh, as an expert in quality, how do you define a baseline that most people, if not all, would agree to accept because translation quality is also very much subjective and dependent on the user background, uh, education, knowledge of the subject, interest in, in the topic and sociopolitical situation? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And um, I suppose it starts with really understanding who your target audience is for the translation. Um, right. Your goal is to ensure that whoever the end user is um, can read the content in their language and immediately grasp the intended meaning without being distracted by the language or questioning how natural the language is. So that's your, that's your true goal. So when you're setting up a project, um, we don't just consider the language of the end user, but we also have to consider their region and their education level. Um, for instance, some patient paperwork in the medical field has to be rendered to the equivalent of a sixth grade reading level. Um, same for newspaper articles and things like that. So we have to consider those factors and put those into the translation instructions or directives if appropriate. So when you approach it like that, like who's your who's your target audience, that helps eliminate some of those subjectivities that you that you mentioned. Um, but then we know there are language constructs that are considered the standard form of a language. Um, and I don't want to say proper or correct, which will say standard. And then there's everything else um, in the language, which is like how formal or informal should it be, or dialectal variations within a region, which, you know, have a big impact on uh, terminology, especially nouns. Um, but once you have an understanding of what's prescriptive in the language and what's descriptive, it's easier to categorize a user's feedback. Um, so a client who's a native speaker of the language but doesn't have a background in translation or linguistics, they 
might perhaps feel really, really strongly that their way is the right way to express something, but that you know it's the non-standard way. Um, so part of our job, I think, is to tactfully educate clients um, as well where we can um, about how we leverage glossaries, about the consistency that we have in translation memories and things like that, because um, ultimately we're, we're the language specialists. Absolutely. Now let's talk about quality and perceived quality. Uh, with tangible products like a, a woman's handbag, I guess quality of workmanship <laughs> is visible, but brand quality is perceived. If a handbag made by Louis Vuitton sells for $12,000, it's expected to be worth that much because it's of a certain quality and brand value. Does that rule apply to services like translation? When does a customer assume that translation is worth a certain amount of dollars? I really like this analogy with the, with the handbag, yeah. So so I might be the outlier here because you will not find me buying a $12,000 handbag. It's a bag. I mean, my dog is going to get hair on it. My kid's going to put Cheetos in it. You get it? Like, I'm not going to spend $12,000 on a bag. <laughs> so, so my thought is um, the biggest and most well-known brands in uh, translation are not automatically the best. It just depends on what the customer needs. Um, so there are uh, people out there looking for the most jaw-dropping statement bag, right? The $12,000 one. Um, and But, you know, for me, my favorite ever purse that I got was this handcrafted um, leather bag that I just happened to come across in a boutique. And it was it was handcrafted by a local artist here in Austin. Um, and it's unique. There's only one like it. And it was $50. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like this was this bag was made for me. Uh, I get so many compliments on this bag. So um, so to come back to the translation analogy, I think a smaller company can customize a solution to, to meet the needs of a customer maybe much more quickly or easily than a large corporation can. Um, corporations, they definitely have resources, they have money, um, but they also have some red tape um, and they sometimes try to make you pick from a pre-selected you know, menu of services or, you know, kind of make a, a round peg um, fit in a square hole. <laughs> so, um, yeah, um, I just think that uh, whether you choose Louis Vuitton or a small leather worker, it kind of just depends on your needs. But uh, I say give the, the small leather worker a chance. It is on the same note, another issue is that uh, most clients do not know the target language that they're translating into. We have clients asking to translate documents across a dozen languages and they only speak English. They take our translation and run it against Google Translate. They take the output and assume our translation has quality issues. How do we set expectations and create assurances for our clients when they don't know what they're getting? Ah, yes, the old uh, Google conundrum that we've probably <laughs> all faced. Um, Absolutely. First of all, if they do that, then they've just given all their content to Google by running it through um, their engine. So True. not good for confidentiality, but that's totally beside the point. Second of all, um, you said in your questions, um, setting an expectation is the key. So part of that is, is educating people on the limitations of current MT technology. And I think that's really important um, because using MT, as we know, um, it yields better outputs, but it really depends on the language pair. Um, some languages have better outputs than others. Uh, it depends on the type of content as well. Um, it depends on how well you trained your, your engine. 
uh, we train engines with human translation, among other things. So there's no engine, um, I guess, to my knowledge, not the MT specialist, but there's no engine that outperforms a human in terms of quality 100% of the time. Um, so now if you take MT and you combine it with human post-editing, then you're onto something. Um, but for that type of feedback from a customer who just sort of ran it through Google and then compared it, I would treat it just like any other feedback um, with an assessment of the perceived errors, I'm using air quotes again, uh, and the error types, and then just break it down as to why the machine quality is not better than the human quality that we provided. Lee, what, what are some of the quality assessment tools that are used in our industry? We've had the Lisa QA tool, as I mentioned earlier, that has been used for measuring quality and establishing benchmarks for a long, long time. But there's no consistency and in some cases contradicting uses of this tool have led to all kinds of problems. Why we don't have a common tool for quality assessment? Yeah, you're, you're right. There's there's a bunch of them. There's the Taos and Lisa and uh, the one I'm most familiar with is the SAE uh, J2450. That's right. Um, yeah. And so I find that translation companies, they have built their quality metrics based on these or based on a mix of them. Or, um, But the reason I think there's not one that's just across the board for everybody is because clients want different things. So it's sort of like a quality is like a moving target. It's hard to meet 100% of the client's needs with just one tool. So in a sense, your, your quality system, your quality assessment, it needs to be versatile. Um, an example might be like if you have um, a legal firm who wants a translation of depositions, well, it doesn't really matter if the, the flow and the style are elevated and elegant, and if there's imagery. No, it just matters if the facts are correct, right? It has to be just dry and factual. But if you have a marketing firm that's you know advertising the next new product, then meaning is less important. Um, we're going at that point for concepts and sentiment and, you know, we're going for catchy and creative. So, um, yeah, in either one of those cases, a grammar mistake is a grammar mistake, right? But I just mean to show that there, you have creative license with certain things and not with others. So your assessment methods need to, to meet that challenge. Lee, I have read about quality systems and uh, quality management to a certain degree. I'm familiar with the Kaizen quality system as part of the process improvement that, that's employed in Toyota and other organizations in Japan. The idea being that a defect is identified, isolated, removed, and documented right away. And the source of the defect is corrected immediately. Do we have such a system in the translation industry? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, ISO 9001 is very much on par with that. Uh, an essential part of that standard is how to control non-conforming products or services and how to handle uh, defects, as you call them. So um, whether the defect is flagged internally or externally from the client, um, we must be documenting it, investigating, investigating it, excuse me, uh, resolving it and then preventing it from happening next time. Um, but to take it a step further, um, you then take all of that data over time of your defect fixing and then you analyze you know, maybe how quickly you responded, how well you resolved an issue um, by checking for recurrence. Um, and then you look for trends in the types of defects that you were seeing and you analyze that data um, and use it as the basis to uh, continually improve your system. Let's let's talk about uh, a conundrum, about a conflicting issue in our industry. People from the outside uh, expect that we can deliver high volumes of quality, high quality translation in a short amount of time. How can a language translation agency scale up to maintain the same level of quality across higher volumes of content? 
Um, this this ties into how the the industry's changing. Uh, right. I, I think I'm going to start sounding like a cheerleader for the <laughs> tech industry, but um, right now those gains in time can be made by leveraging technology. So, for instance, right. um, you know, automating the recognition of content type um, across you know document types, batching things up better or more efficiently, uh, maybe using automation or AI to identify resource groups and assign work. Um, anything that you can do to reduce manual efforts is, is going to help with that. And it sort of ties in as well to Kaizen and, and Six Sigma philosophy, because um, there's a lot of time waste that can happen. Um, and our goal is, is to reduce it. So, um, but not enough can be said, uh, again, for the pre-planning or the project setup phase. If you devote um, the proper amount of time in the beginning um, to the setup of your project and to identifying your scope and your needs, then you're going to maybe reduce the time that you have, the window of time that you have for translation, um, but it's worth it in the long run. It saves you time um, because, you know, if you deliver something, um, you know, on time, but that has quality issues and then you need to take it back and fix it and re-deliver, then you've also not been quick. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And there are costs associated with that too, right? So yeah, as a business, from a yeah. business point, yeah. Okay. So, uh, clients uh, expect translation to be delivered quickly, cheap, and with good quality. You call it the, the trinity. We, you alluded right, to yeah. this earlier. I think there are language companies trying to hit all three checkboxes here, but I find it hard to believe that it's possible. Something has to give us. The, as the quality manager, where your job is to ensure quality is always maintained, how would you advise such clients or organizations to have a reasonable expectation? In other words, which of the three uh, of these, these items would you advise them to give up? Well, it's not easy, and I, I would say don't don't give one up. Don't give one up just right off the bat. Um, I think we have to get creative, um, but I think there is sometimes a way to strike a balance. For instance, we could maybe focus on creating concessions with customers. Say, okay, you want all three of these things, but you're providing me with dead PDF files or you know PDFs, which require a lot of you know pre-processing and post-processing and DTP. So maybe if you could give me Word documents, I can do this faster for you. So something like that, like negotiate a different file type. Um, maybe that's a bad example, but um, pretend maybe there's like a huge project and there's a massive word count and they want it delivered in four days into 12 languages. Well, perhaps you need to identify what part of that project is the most pressing for the client or maybe what languages are the most um, important and you could offer a rolling delivery or a batch delivery or something like that. Like, just try to to get creative. Um, and I think sometimes that solution works. And then if you can't, um, do your best. <laughs> I think quality, <laughs> for me, I'm going to tell you quality at the end of the day is, is paramount. Um, Absolutely. You know, deliver fast and it's unusable, then, you know, guess what? There's <laughs> no point. Back yeah. and, right, there's no point. <laughs> Lee, I know you're a big fan of technology, so let's talk about it. <laughs> Has technology improved the quality of translation or resulted in higher volume with reduced quality? I think that technology increases quality. I guess you knew I was going to say that. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I definitely <laughs> help. I think it helps you speed things up. Um, but the key is not technology by itself. Like it's not technology alone. You still need human intervention. So if you just think about um, the the perils of automatic spell checker, I think we can all really relate to that. It does not 
pick up context or nuance. Um, for instance, words that sound the same like there and there or um, desert and desert, you know, so we still need a human to use and master those tools and, and help harmonize the process. And while we are at technology, do you think that our industry is at a point that technology should be adopted at a massive scale or we are, we should still be testing technology? Because that's what we are doing right now. Yeah, no, I think it, we need to keep testing and keep improving. Yeah, keep testing it and, and moving it forward. Absolutely. There are different types of content available for consumption. Do they all deserve the same level of quality and scrutiny that goes into creating that quality? No, um, you definitely have to define the scope. Um, so there, a customer could be happy with just raw MT um, because they need a massive word count translated just for gisting, for understanding the gist of a of, a, of documents. Right. Um, so I, you know, think maybe like um, volumes of legal text and legal precedents or testimony or whatever research that you put in for a case. Um, but then there's other customers, of course, who who will need and expect, you know, absolute perfection uh, for their branding and for their website or their their glossy flyers or whatever. So so definitely need to to know um, what the customer's needs are to provide, to, to hone in and customize that service. Uh, while we are talking about the product quality here, Lee, let me ask you a follow-up question. Uh, there are new and emerging use cases for using technology and language services combined. So for example, in case of summarization and in case of uh, gisting, as you mentioned, are there new quality models that need to be developed to ensure that they uh, are delivered with a certain level of confidence to client? Yes, I think that that for for each level of output, you have to um, be able to help the the client know what those expectations are, and that starts by creating sort of a, a baseline for you know for what that that quality output should be. So that's a that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, how about artificial intelligence output and expected uh, human consumption quality of this content? We are stepping into the age of post-edited machine translation. In fact, we've been doing this for 10 years. Do the right. same rules and requirements uh, applying now to this massive amount of text as it does to the quality of human-produced translation? Um, I think it just goes back to understanding um, the use cases and understanding the, the needs and, and the client expectations um, because there's different types of um, service levels for MT. Um, right. th that are customized, like we just mentioned. So there's the, the raw MT, but then maybe there's light post-editing, full post-editing, um, where you treat the, the machine translation like a fuzzy match and review the whole thing. Um, and then you take that content and retrain the machine so that the machine learns from the editors. Um, and then, you know, you can take your uh, machine translation and send it through one round of post-editing, two rounds of post-editing, or however many, like creative adaptation, whatever you need. Um, so, so by understanding the, the the needs of the client, their expectations, you're you're sort of setting yourself up for success later. Now, uh, that being said, uh, there are some ethical questions here to answer. So, for example, does the end client need to know that a certain translation was produced <laughs> by machine and cleaned up by humans? Um, because the quality is the same. If we are just talking about quality, maybe the, we are delivering the exact same quality as if it was translated by uh, a professional translator. What are your thoughts on that? That is a that is a complicated question. I think that if you are um, if you are charging the client for a machine translation, then you need to um, disclose that to the client that that that's what um, that's what's um, 
going on in the back. However, if you are using your machine merely as an efficiency tool in pre-production and then still sending it through the same amount of linguists um, with the only difference being that your first post editor is, is sort of reviewing the fuzzy match instead of translating from scratch, you're saving time. So I think if you're not reducing the number of human humans that it goes through, I think it's okay to have blind MT. Understood. Now, from your experience, Lee, do you see any advantage or disadvantage in the area of quality when you compare a small language providers to large or super LSCs as they're known? Uh, no, I, I think that any company can provide quality work, whether they're big or small. It just comes down to the level of care that the company or the project manager, whoever is putting into it. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, uh, what is your advice for language companies in general? I would say um, focus on the things that that matter most. Um, if you care about quality, then embrace <laughs> embrace your quality department <laughs> and the guidance of your your quality team because um, they're on your side. Um, they're basically your internal uh, consultants on how the company and the processes function. Uh, a lot of uh, quality people have the ability to maybe move on to be like heads of operations because they just have that big picture of how the company functions uh, from the inside out. Um, and lastly, I would say treat your translators well, treat your people well, um, your employees. Translators and linguists especially are the backbone of our industry. And so I think I think pay them well is really important. That's That helps us remain ethical. Uh, human, human assets are our biggest asset. So I, I really think if you have happy people, you'll you'll have a successful company. <laughs> Let me ask you a follow-up. What are, what's your message for your peers and the quality sector of this industry? Uh, what is the quality um, experiencing today? Where is it going? Will there be more automation? What would you advise them? Well, I think I'd advise them as well, like embrace the automation and see, you know, if we can work at the intersection of quality and technology, because I really believe we can. Um, we don't, we, I mean, it's good to, to think outside the box um, and, you know, really try to put yourself in the shoes of, you know, production or translation and trying, who are, you know, trying to meet these, these you know, uh, crazy demands. Um, and so whatever quality solutions and processes that we implement, um, try to not have that be a burden on on production. Try to, you know, to understand that their constraints as well and help them. Thank you for that answer. Uh, sadly, we are reaching towards the end of the interview. I would just like to ask you if people were to want to discuss further with you on the subject of quality, how should they reach out to you, Lee? Uh, well, I'm, I'm the way you found me. I'm active on, on LinkedIn. Um, so uh, I'm Lee Marshall Turgut on there. Uh, don't offer me jobs for QA defect fixing positions. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you can, you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for this informative and insightful conversation today, Lee. I, I hope we can do this again soon. I've learned a great deal today, and I'm sure our listeners are also, they've had a few action items to improve quality in their organizations. And with that, I want to thank you for your time today. Well, thanks so much. It was my pleasure, and I enjoyed chatting with you. Um, I enjoyed your, your interest in quality, so <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> thank you.
Quality is a subjective matter, but without it, the output of the process of translation is not fit for use. Just like a medicine poses certain risks without proper testing and trial, translated text can also have different types of adverse consequences if proper quality is not in practice. Organizations have come a long way in this industry in ensuring quality, but there is still a lot of inconsistencies in how quality is perceived. Standards and best practices are mere guidelines that have been validated at certain point in time through certification, but the actual quality is dependent on the producers of translation. I'm a firm believer in the philosophy of quality of Henry Ford, who said quality is doing the right thing when no one is looking. There you have it. My conversation with Lee Turgut on quality was as much fun as it was insightful. I learned many things that I'm going to go and dig more. I think she offers a fresh perspective on what quality means and how it has been misunderstood on so many levels. We should keep an eye on what we do and if we all do our parts, we will improve quality which will result in better reputation for our companies and for our industry as a whole. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice and give us a 5 star rating or thumbs up. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. 